I'm Steph. I'm Kim. And, and this, this is Solved, Unsolved, or Spooky. Hey, True Crimers. How Hi. are we? <laughs> hey, everyone. How are you, Kim? Good. How are you? Awesome. Have you got any, any goss or anything <laughs> that's happened lately? Well, when was it? Uh, the other day, I don't know, can't remember what, exactly what day, but I was in bed with my kittens, and my whole cabin shook, and I'm like, what is that? But, oh, whatever, I'm not going to get out of bed. <laughs> <laughs> and then about a minute later, it happened again, and I was like, okay, that's just weird, and my kittens freaked out. And then when I went up and checked internet, <laughs> apparently we had a earthquake, hmm. and I think it I don't know, it was felt a fair way, I think. I think I saw there was reports that it was felt in Canberra and Maroolan. So it went a fair distance. Big distance. Yeah. Covered a huge area. Very interesting. As, like my first. First <laughs> earthquake. <laughs> I think I've been in one. Have you? One. Yeah. Very it was exciting. Very random. Hmm. And also my mushrooms are starting to grow. Also very exciting. Thank you, Aldi. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else happened to you in the week? I don't think so. I think it did. I got a phone call while oh, I was at God. work and Kimberly was like <laughs> so stressed out that Luna ran away from home. She wouldn't come back 30 minutes. <laughs> okay. And I'm like, it's okay. I'll just I'll just leave work. It's okay. Don't stress out. I'll be there. I'm leaving work straight away. And then I put the phone down and straight away the phone <laughs> rings again and it's Kimberly. Luna's home. <laughs> so yeah. I didn't have to stress out and leave work. No. Well, it's an hour trip home from work. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what's your story today? So today I'm doing a story uh, that's over 55 years old. Is it that? Yeah, that's it's a, a long, long, time, long yeah. story. And I think the sad thing about the story is because it's so old, mm. the chances of it ever being solved are just slipping away with every day. Yeah. Which is so sad. One of the one of the parents, it's like it's three children who went missing. And one of the parents is actually still alive. Oh. He's 92 years old and the mum lived to 90 as well. Like mm, Not knowing where their kids are. Ah, oh, so sad. So this week we're doing the Beaumont children from South Australia. Jane Nartair Beaumont, born on the 10th of September 1956, was only nine years old. Her sister Anna, Kathleen Beaumont, was born on the 11th of November 1958 and was only seven years old. And precious little Grant Ellis Beaumont was born on the 12th of July, 1961. And he was still a baby and was only age four when he disappeared. So tiny. So sad. Mm. Like To have your whole family taken from you. Like, mm. horrific. These beautiful, lively and friendly children known and loved by many locals live with their parents. Parents were Grant, also known as Jim Beaumont, a former serviceman and driver for the local suburban taxis, and Nancy Beaumont. Jim and Nancy had married in December 1955 and they lived in a suburban Australian home at 109 Harding Street, Somerton Park in South Australia. Back then the homes were like really tiny. They usually had like your two or three bedroom home and they were just tiny little homes. On the 25th of January 1966, the sun was shining brightly on a summer's day during one of our incredible heat waves. Oh, God. So January is like 
the yeah, worst. Fair in the middle of yeah. summer, yeah, and my least favorite time. Yeah. <laughs> The Beaumont children wanted to spend the day at the local beach where they frequented on a regular basis. Jim Beaumont dropped his three children off at Glenelg Beach before heading off on a three-day sales trip to Snowtown. Oh. Yes, Snowtown. Snowtown. <laughs> yes, another place. <laughs> yeah, we have another story about Snowtown, which is absolutely horrific and pretty sure that'll be one on Kim's list. Probably. Jane, the eldest child, was considered responsible enough to care for the two younger siblings. Could you imagine that now? <laughs> no. <laughs> Nine-year-old being responsible. But even if, like, you did have, like, she could keep them in line and all that, it's the outside forces that is so terrifying to me. I see kids all the time, and I'm like, where is your parents? Yeah. Even, like, I saw probably someone who was, like, 14 or 15 or something. I'm like, yeah, like you world. could get kidnapped. Ugh, drives me crazy. This was a normal situation back in the 1960s in Australia. There was very little crime and children were deemed to be safe outside on their own. On the morning of January 26, 1966, on the public holiday currently known as Australia Day, the children asked their mother to visit the beach again as it was too hot to walk. Mm. The children took a five, the five-minute, two-mile bus journey from their home to the beach at 8.45 a.m. Like, it's just unbelievable to think of these little kids getting on a bus mm. on their own. I guess, uh, to me, like, we've never really lived anywhere that you can just hop on a bus, on a somewhere. bus or anything, though. So, to me, that's kind of foreign anyway. Yeah. And the kids were expected to return home on the 12 o'clock bus. The children arrived at Glenelg the Mosley Street bus stop across the road from Wenzel's Bakery and then had the short walk to the beach and Collie Reserve. Jane was dressed in a pink one-piece swimmers with pale green shorts and canvas sand shoes with white soles. How cute would she look? Mm. She took a paperback copy of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. She carried three beach towels inside a bag Anna wore a one-piece red and white striped swimsuit with tan shorts and sandals. She also sported a bright orange hairpin. Grant wore only green and white vertically striped bathers under his cotton shorts with red sandals and no shirt. Nancy became worried when the children didn't return on the 12 o'clock or 2 o'clock buses. I can only assume that back then that it would have been like a one-car household. Like you didn't Probably. have two cars and yeah. mum usually couldn't drive, that kind of thing, mm. usually the dad. And off he's gone for his three-day jaunt to Snowtown. But Jim actually returned home at 3 o'clock that day. Yeah. Like he'd come home early from his trip, which was quite the miracle. He immediately drove to the beach to locate them. However, he was unable to find them. Mm. And he returned home to pick up Nancy and together they searched the streets and visited friends' houses. At around 5.30pm, they went to the Glenelg Police Station to report the children missing. In the days following the children's disappearance, crowds of people swarmed to watch police in efforts to locate the children. Volunteers helped police in what was the largest scale search in South Australian history. Moston Matters, who was working at the Glenelg Police Station on the day the boatmonts disappeared, remembers being inundated with witness statements. These are his statements. At the time, we were inundated with people that wanted to come and give information, and all we had was a little room at the front of the police station 
that was used for witnesses and the court, he said. We had one phone for the main police station, that's all we had, and people were queuing up to give statements and what have you. And we only had a sergeant and four men there. They were just snowed under, and by the time you interviewed people and typed up their reports and everything, it was just one of those things when you could only do your best. We still had our own work going on, and there was still crime being committed in Glenelg. Police quickly organised a search of the area on and around the beach, based on the assumptions that children were nearby and had simply lost track of time. That would have been ideal. Yeah. (laughs) Just fine and plain. At 7.20pm, the South Australian Women Police Office reported children missing, reported to Glenelg Police by father minutes before. Father and police carried out thorough search of the beach area. At 8.40pm, local police searched the Brighton foreshore. Officers also searched West Beach and Henley Beach for the children. At 9.50, Sea Rescue Squadron volunteers offered to search the coastline. Police declined official expression but advised squadron that they could search on their own accord. At 10pm, police check with father who reports he's spoken with friends and relatives and cannot locate the children. The father authorised the police to supply radio stations and pub with public announcements. 10.17pm, three police officers report they've searched vessels at Boathaven and surrounding lawns, with the children not sighted. The search then expanded to the Sandhills Ocean and nearby buildings, with the airport, rail lines and interstate roads being monitored too. Based on the growing fear that the children may have been in an accident, or could have been kidnapped. I'm going with that one. (laughs) Within 24 hours, the entire nation was aware of the case. Within three days, on January 29, the Sunday Mail led with a headline that said, Sex Crime Now Feared, highlighting the rapidly evolving fear that they'd been abducted and murdered by a sex offender. Despite this, the initial reward was only £250. I don't know how much that is. Tiny amount of money. Back then it would have been a fair bit, but... Not enough. Tiny, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, not enough to make a difference. Yeah. It's now set at a million dollars. Oh, wow. Police quickly established that between them, the children were carrying 17 individual items, including clothing, towels and bags, but none of these items were ever found. Police cadets and members of the emergency operations group searched the area, but nothing was found. The Patawalonga boat haven was drained on January 29, after a woman told police that she'd spoken with three children who were similar in description to the Beaumont children near the haven at 7pm on January 26. Mm. Nothing was found. On the day of their disappearance, however, several witnesses had seen the children on and near Glenelg Beach with a tall, blonde, thin-faced man with a sun-tanned complexion of thin to athletic build. He was aged in his mid-30s to mid-40s. He stood approximately 6 foot to 6 foot 1 inches tall, and the man was clean-shaven and wearing Speedo-type swimming trunks. He had a long face and a high forehead, together with swept back, light brown to fair, short hair parted to one side. He was wearing navy, navy blue bathers, with single white stripes down either side, and he also had a towel with him. He carried a shirt and trousers that he had placed on a nearby park bench. 
An identicate was drawn up of the man. However, there were some problems with the drawing. <laughs> and I've seen the drawing. There are problems with the drawing. The artist yeah. was apparently drunk at the time and had to <laughs> rush <laughs> had to rush the sketch due to a timely deadline. It does look really wonky. Not good. I think I've seen that one. But you think they would have got him to do it again next day when he sobered up? I don't know. Australia. <laughs> Confirmed sightings of the three children occurred at the Collie Reserve and at Wenzel's Cake Shop on 2 Mosley Street, Glenelg. The children were playing with the thin-faced man and appeared relaxed and to be enjoying themselves. There was no sign they were being held against their will. Mm, but they're kids. They're just whittle people. Like, kids are trusting, so unfortunately. Trusting. Yeah. A woman saw the children between 11am and 12. She was sitting on a wooden bench near the Holdfast Base Yacht Club and watched the children run up from their dip in the ocean. They'd laid out their towels before running under the freshwater sprinklers to clean themselves off. The witness noticed a middle-aged man already lying on his towel before the children arrived and he was closely watching them. After playing under the water, the children walked over and started playing games with this individual. Grant, the youngest boy, was jumping over him and was followed by Anna, then Jane. Kids are just so innocent. Oh, they're so innocent, (laughs) aren't they? Mm. But why not just enjoy that innocence? Because some people are horrible and, Mm. yeah. The two girls then began playfully flicking him with their towels. A female eyewitness who got up from the park bench to walk home around 11.30 stated the man and the children were still playing near the water sprinklers. Later, the man approached a couple close by and asked, did any of you see anyone with our clothes? When asked why, he said, we've had some money taken from our clothes. Another witness believed the man stated, has anyone messed with our clothes? We've had our money pinched. After asking the people, the man returned back to the children. However, this couple had their curiosity aroused when they witnessed the man dress all of the children. They thought this was strange especially as the elder girl, Jane, appeared to be old enough to dress herself. Like little sicko. He's obviously taken the kid's money Mm. and now he's like trying to cover his tracks. The man then picked up his towel and his clothes just after midday and walked in a northerly direction towards the changing sheds at Collie Reserve, 130 metres away from where they were playing. Jane, Anna and Grant happily followed him and waited outside the changing rooms before walking away with him in the opposite direction at around 12.15 to the children's bus stop for their return trip. The Beaumonts described their children, particularly Jane, as shy. For them to be playing so confidently with a stranger seemed out of character. Investigators theorised that the children had perhaps met the man during the previous visit or visits and had grown to trust him. A chance remark at home, which seemed insignificant at the time, supported this theory. Anna had told her mother that Jane had got a boyfriend down the beach. Nancy thought she met a playmate and took no further notice until after the disappearance. If indeed the abductor was a boyfriend, it suggests that this person was frequently at Glenelg. Having seen the children on occasions before, and this would be more likely a local than someone living further away. Yeah. It sounds like he was down there a lot. Grooming Yeah, grooming them. Mm. Yeah. Jane was well aware of the risk strangers posed and her parents seemed surprised that she would play with a supposed random man and let him dress her. Yeah. Like his. Jane also bought her book 
little women to the beach with her that day, despite it being a five-minute bus drive and only a planned two-hour outing. It is possible she wanted to impress someone that day, hence bought the book. The last sighting of the Beaumont children was also around 12.20pm to 12.30pm at Wenzel's Bakery at the corner of Mosley Street and Jetty Road. A shop assistant at Wenzel's Bakery reported Jane had bought a pie, placing this in a separate bag. She also bought five pasties and six finger buns and two large bottles of fizzy drink with a one-pound note. Police viewed this as further evidence that they'd been with another person. Yeah, because they didn't have that much money. They didn't have that much money. They had enough for the bus and just and, a yeah. bit of a snack. The shopkeeper knew the children well from previous visits and reported that they'd never purchased a meat pie before. And the children's mother had given them only six shillings and six pence. Enough for the bus fare and lunch, not one pound. Yeah. Police believed it had been given to them by somebody else. The amount of food and drink the children bought was quite large for a short trip to the beach. Psychic detective and best-selling author Scott Russell Hill, age 60, who was a childhood playmate of the Beaumont children, said in 2018, My father, who knew all the Beaumont family very well, was taking a shortcut to beat Australia Day traffic when he saw the children standing on the corner of Augusta and Durham Streets in Glenelg at 1.30. They were with three other people, a thin-faced blonde stranger, a male he recognised from one of the local racing stables with shoulder-length hair, and a middle-aged woman wearing a pale blue pattern dress. Dad was surprised they were with another woman and not their mother, Nancy. He did report it to detectives at the time, but there were so many sightings, not all of them were followed up. That's crazy. You think he knew him? Oh, He'd be so following crazy. Up because he knew him. Yeah, Like so he's crazy. not going to go, that might be them. And he's got the name of one of the guys. He yeah. knows one of them. How easy is it to follow that up? To his dying day in May 1982, my father swore black and blue it was the Beaumonts he'd seen. Hill was approached by several other people who confirmed his father's eyewitness account, right down to the distinctive design on the unknown woman's pale blue dress. So other people saw the same thing. This sounds scarily accurate, as there were six people, so there's the three people and the three kids, six hot food items, Mm. pie and five pasties, and six finger buns. And with so many sightings so close to the disappearance, I don't think it's a coincidence. That is weird. It is, hey. Mm. Very odd. See, I've never really heard that. Yeah. Like, I've heard this story covered a lot, especially like 60 Minutes does a lot. Yeah. I've, I've, but I I've read a lot and that. nobody really pieced that together. Yeah. I've read different parts and no one's really pieced the amount of food yeah. with those numbers. I was going to say, for that little kid yeah. and one guy, it's a lot of food. A lot of food. There were other sightings reported, though. The children were seen walking alone at about 3pm, away from the beach along Jetty Road, in the general direction of their home. The witness, who was the local postman, knew the children well, Mm. and his statement was regarded as reliable. He said the children were holding hands and laughing in the main street. Police couldn't determine why the reliable children, already one hour late, were strolling along, seemingly unconcerned. Like, especially if the old Jane was responsible and knew her mum would be worrying. Yeah. She'd be like, okay, guys, we've got to get, get home. home. A two-mile walk, you think, yeah. if they'd missed a bus or something, they'd be just desperately trying to get home mm. on time. But you don't want to worry your mum because you know she's going to come looking for you. Well, that's the thing, like, because I'm the oldest out of us, like, girls, and there's no way I'd be like, 
we're just going to walk home casually or we're going to do this. I'd be like, no, we're doing this. Mum's going to get upset. You're going to go grab your sister's hands. Let's go. Drag him along. Yeah. The postman, postman contacted police two days after his initial statement and said that he thought he saw them in the morning, not the afternoon, as he'd previously stated. That would make more sense. Mm. Several months later, a woman reported that on the night of the disappearance, a man, accompanied by two girls and a boy, entered a neighbouring house that she believed empty. Later, she'd seen the boy walking alone along a lane where he was pursued and roughly caught by a man. The next morning, the house appeared to be deserted again, and she saw neither the man nor the children again. Other reported sightings of the children continued for about a a year after the disappearance. Police were desperate for any clues, and on the 8th of November 1966, Gerard Croisset, a parapsychologist psychic from the Netherlands, was brought to Australia to search for the children. And, like, I think there's such thing as psychics, and I think there's Mm. awkward value. Like that one in the Moores case, and just this is where they're kind of buried, like they're yep. in a, like a marsh, and that's like exactly where yep. they found him. But some, I think, really detract from. Oh, some are just hoax. Some are, and that's terrible. Don't um, get involved no. in this. No, they shouldn't. This proved unsuccessful with his story changing from day to day and offering no clues. Hope they didn't pay him. Mm. He identified a site in a warehouse near the children's home and also near the Paringa Primary School, attended by Jane and Anna, in which he believed the children's bodies had been buried. At the time of their disappearance, it had been a building site, and he said that he believed their bodies were buried under new concrete Mm. inside the remains of an old brick kiln. The property owners, who were reluctant to excavate on the basis of a psychic claim... Yeah, he kind of would be. (laughs) ...soon bowed to public pressure after publicity raised $40,000 to have the building demolished. Back then, $40,000, huge amount Mm. of money. No remains or any evidence linking to any of the Beaumont family were ever found. I was going to say that they kind of did it for nothing. Yeah. I guess that money and at the time people were so desperate they were willing to do anything to try and find these kids. In 1996, the building identified by Croisette was undergoing partial demolition and the owners allowed for a full search of the site. Once again, no trace of them was found. And about two years after the disappearance, the Beaumonts received two letters. One was apparently written by Jane and another by a man who said he was keeping the children. Mm. The envelope showed a postmark of Dandenong, Victoria. The brief notes described a relatively pleasant existence and referred to the man who was keeping them. Police believed at the time that the letters could quite likely have been authentic after comparing them with others written by Jane. Mm, I was going to say, they compared it and they thought that it could be could hers. Be her. yeah. yeah. The letter from the man said that he'd appointed himself the guardian of the children and was willing to hand them back to their parents. In the letter, a meeting place was nominated. The Beaumont parents, followed by a detective, drove to the designated place, but nobody appeared. Mm. It was some time later that a third letter, also purported to be from Jane, arrived. It said the man had been willing to return them, but when he realised a disguised detective was also there, he decided that the Beaumonts had betrayed his trust and that he would keep the children. There were no further letters. In 1992, with new forensic examinations of the letters, showed they were a hoax. Mm. Fingerprint technology had improved and the author was identified as a 41-year-old man who'd been a teenager at the time. 
he'd written the letters as a joke. A hate I don't see anything funny in that. That's horrific. No. Because of the time that had elapsed, he was not charged with any of the offences. These professionals are saying, yeah, this could be Jane, right? Yeah. They've obviously looked at her writing, way she writes, yeah. her language, all that sort of stuff, and they're, yeah, this could be Jane. Mm. I don't understand how this stranger. Maybe he just got lucky and kind of had a similar way of writing and talking. After A year after the disappearance, there was a face on a local children's television show that looked hauntingly familiar. It was February 1967, a year after the baffling disappearance of Adelaide's Beaumont children. Yet this audience member was a mirror image of the eldest Jane. Six people who knew the missing children, including grief-stricken mother Nancy Beaumont, were so convinced by the mystery girl's identity they contacted detectives. In a case that offered so few leads, this seemed promising. Mm. Perhaps producers of Pied Piper, which was then a Channel 10 children's favourite, would have some record of this perplexing audience member's name and address. But once again, the trail led nowhere. Just like the recent headline grabbing dig for the Beaumont children's bones at the new Castleoy factory in Adelaide suburban North Plimpton. There was some kind of investigation and everyone in the studio audience could be accounted for, except for that one girl, say psychic detective and best-selling author Scott Russell Hill, who was a childhood playmate. Ten was going to send her a prize, but she'd given a false name and address. That's crazy. Doesn't make sense, does it? That's weird, yeah. Mm. It's interesting that six people who knew Jane including her mother, were all convinced it was her a year later. But if it was her, what happened? Why was she the only person to give fake contact details? And if it wasn't Jane, it still raises the question, is there other information out there? Like why would this person give a fake name? Yeah, it's weird. Very odd. Other similar child abductions occurred around the time and the perps of all of those other cases had chillingly similar features. A slim long face, around six foot tall, the slim build and the sandy coloured hair. The Ratcliffe Gordon case occurred only seven years later. Adelaide Oval was packed for the August 25th, 1973 Aussie Rules match between Norwood and North Adelaide. Joanne Ratcliffe, 11, was one of 13,000 spectators who attended the football match. She was sitting with her parents and next to Hurst Gordon, four-year-old who was in the care of her grandmother. Joanne's family had been to the Oval to watch dozens of games and the young girl knew her way around the grounds. Bored, she struck up a friendship with the four-year-old sitting next to her and when the younger child asked to go to the bathroom, Joanne volunteered to take her. The Ratcliffe family had a rule. Joanne could go to the bathroom while the game was being played but not during the last quarter nor in any of the breaks. The two girls went together early in the game and then again during the third quarter. The second time they did not return. A skinny-faced man around the age of 40 wearing a brimmed hat and a tweed jacket was spotted with the girls in and around the Oval by numerous witnesses. Mm. The assistant curator of Adelaide Oval, Ken Walling, spotted the man and two young girls behind the grandstand trying to coax a kitten out from under a car. Anthony Kilmartin, 13, was selling drinks and lollies when he saw the man come from behind a tree and scoop up the younger girl with one arm and carry her towards the southern gates with Joanne following frantically behind. According to Anthony, Joanne, who he later identified from a selection of photographs, Mm. was kicking the man in the shins and pulling at his jacket. He was angrily yelling, clear off 
before taking her by the arm and leading both children out the gate. Sue Laurie, just one year older than Anthony, witnessed the same scene, but mistakenly read this as a family dispute. The misinterpretation was understandable, and even after learning of the abductions, she didn't make the link. It wasn't until 1980 when she offhandedly mentioned the scene to her husband that it began to weigh heavily on her mind. She reported to police but didn't revisit this day again in her mind until almost two decades later. Wow. The child was crying, she told Adelaide radio station 5AA in 1998, and a second girl who looked a few years younger than me was running after the man, thumping him and punching into him and shouting, we want to go back. I assumed, absolutely assumed, that the man must be the girl's grandfather and that the girls were misbehaving. I watched it all for about 60 seconds and my main reaction was surprise that the grandfather didn't tell his granddaughter off for hitting him. 90 minutes later, a motorist spotted the trio some three kilometres past the oval and such was Joanne's distress the man pulled over before thinking twice about interfering. This was the latest reported sighting of the two girls or the man. Given the man's distinct appearance and how he was acting in broad daylight in an oval containing 13,000 people, people were able to get an accurate description. The identical picture was drawn and widely disseminated and an eerie connection was apparent to all. The police sketch of the suspect in the Adelaide Oval case looked exactly the same as the one drawn years earlier after the Beaumont children went missing. There's way too many suspects in this crime. Oh, so many. Way too many suspects. Like way too many people that hurt children that they could just be looking at as a possible. Oh. So with these horrible suspects, I will give you guys a trigger warning. They're gross. They're just disgusting creatures. Um yeah, so if you don't want to hear some horrible stuff, don't listen. I kind of have to hear. Bevan Spencer von Einem, who was sentenced, he was sentenced to life imprisonment in 1984 for murdering the son of Adelaide newsreader Rob Kelvin, who was 15-year-old Richard Kelvin. Investigators believed von Einem had accomplices and was probably involved in additional murders and disappearances, mm. including the Beaumont children. However, no accomplices were ever charged and Von Einem has refused to cooperate yeah. about his possible connections with other murders. In 1979, the body of a young man was found in Adelaide. He was identified as Neil Muir, 25 years old. Mm -hmm. His body was badly mutilated. In 1982, the mutilated body of Mark Langley, 18, was found. Before his death, he had been subjected to surgery. His abdomen had been sliced open and had been shaved prior to this. Part of his bowel had been removed and Langley had died from loss of blood. Over the next few months, more bodies were found. The dismembered skeletal remains of Peter Stogneff, 14, were found almost a year after his disappearance and Alan Barnes, 18, was found mutilated in a similar manner to Langley. A fifth victim, Richard Kelvin, 15, was found in 1983, once again with the same mutilations. Bevan Spencer von Einem was convicted of Kelvin's murder in 1984 and was charged with the murders of Barnes and Langley in 1989. However, the prosecution was forced to enter a null prosecute, I think that's how it's pronounced, which <laughs> means unwilling to pursue. So, oh, you know, you've chopped all these people up, you've killed all these people, but let's just... You know, let's just put you in jail for one of them. 
Because that makes so much sense. I hate that because then it feels like you're not getting justice for the other victim. Oh, it's so sad. And they did this because there was crucial evidence which was deemed inadmissible. These crimes have been known collectively as the family murders. Police believe that a core group of four people and up to eight associates were involved in the murders. Testimony given during Von Einem's trial alleged he was involved in both the Beaumont children's disappearance and the abduction of Ratcliffe and Gordon. Police heard from an informant identified only as Mr B, who spoke of an an alleged conversation in which Von Eyman boasted of having taken three children from a beach several years earlier. This bit's really gross if you don't want, if you just want to put your fingers in your ear for 60 seconds. He said he'd taken them home to conduct experiments. Oh. Von Einem had said he had performed brilliant surgery on each of them. Oh, God. And had connected them up. One of the children had supposedly died during the procedure. So he had killed the other two children and dumped all the bodies in bushland in South Adelaide. God. Police had not previously considered Von Einem in connection with the Beaumont children, but he somewhat resembled the description and mm. police sketches from 1966. According to Adelaide Police Detective Bob O'Brien, Mr B gave important information during the investigation into the Kelvin murder and was regarded as a generally reliable source. So obviously he had info about that group and told cops what was happening. So he's obviously a reliable witness, so he's obviously not making this garbage up, but whether Von Einem is. However, there were not enough concrete details to warrant further investigation. Von Einem had been known to have visited Glenelg Beach to watch children in the change rooms. However, he was younger. He was only 20 to 21 years old, so a lot younger than the suspect seen with the Beaumont children. Yeah, but did he look older? And was he the son of the older guy with the... Like me, I don't look my age. I look way younger. Yeah. So you never know if someone could look older or anything. Yeah, and and he was convicted of murdering teenage boys, which was very distressing distinct victimology Hmm. and very different to that of the Beaumont children. That is true. Von Einem also told the witness that he'd taken two girls from the Adelaide Oval during a football match, another infamous disappearance. That's the one we just discussed. Hmm. In August 2007, it was reported that police were examining archival footage from the original search that had at the time been shot by Channel 7 that shows a young man resembling Von Einem among the onlookers. That's just so weird. Amongst it. It's, it's, see, with this case, there's so many people who they could have done it. They could have done and it. And then there's so many things that are like, like you just like, you don't know because they have all these links. And were they in cahoots with each other? Were there, you know, was it two or three of these people? Another sicko pervo around the time was Arthur Stanley Brown. He's another disgusting beast. I was going to say that name also rings a bell. Mm. He was convicted for the rape and murder of Judith and Susan McKay. Kai, McKay, we'll go with McKay. Arthur Brown had been linked to both the Beaumont case and also the infamous Adelaide Oval abduction, which occurred on the 25th of August 1973. In 1998, Arthur Stanley Brown was charged with the murder of sisters Judith, seven years old, and Susan, five years old, in Townsville, Queensland. So, so that's sad. the same kind of victimology. He would have had to have moved. Yeah, but they think he's very likely to have been in the area. Yeah. They disappeared while on their way to school on August 26, 1970, and were less than 200 metres away from their house 
when they were abducted. Oh, They'd only left terrifying. home 10 minutes earlier and were walking to their bus stop. That's just terrifying. Yeah. And it's the same thing. Go on, kids catching a bus. Bus so like that Daniel Morecambe case as well. Oh, yeah. Like he was just going to catch a bus to go and buy his like, family presents no. and they never saw him again. So sad. Their naked bodies were discovered two days later in a dry creek bed. Both girls had been raped and each had been stabbed three times in the chest. Both of them were choked to death before the sexual assault took place. Susan, with the killer's bare hands, and Judith, after sand was forced into her mouth and nose, blocking her airways. They were dead before they were assaulted. The girls' school uniforms were neatly folded and placed beside them, along with their straw hats and school bags. Even their socks were folded and placed carefully one inside each shoe. That's weird. Very weird, but that's a very specific, very specific OCD. Yeah. One man saw a slender male leaning out of a car, talking to the girls at the bus stop at eight ten a.m. Three hours later, and eighty-five kilometres away, the same man pulled up at a service station and refuelled. This actually bothers me that the police, just the police, are bad in this one. Why do they not think it could be him? Well. They just don't listen to people. The attendant, Jean Thwaite, recalled later that one of the two girls with the man asked, when are you taking us to mummy? You promised to take us to mummy, the two children said. And the two children seemed upset. That's so heartbreaking. Later still, another driver had a heated argument with the man who was with two young girls in school uniforms that matched those of the McKay girls. Although these latter two sightings were the most concrete, mm. they were disregarded by the police. What? Why? As both the petrol station attendant and the motorist claimed the car was a Vauxhall with a mismatched driver's side door. Other people had told him it was an FJ Holden. So? Absolutely crazy. He could have two cars. He could have two cars. <laughs> or he might have stolen a car. Like Crazy, a, absolutely many crazy. Uh, options there. They also both gave very similar descriptions of the man with his narrow, long head and high cheekbones. Police were told by numerous other witnesses, however, that the car was an FJ Holden with a mismatched door. And given this description, happened to match a car parked near where the bodies were found. Hmm. Police believed that they'd found the correct vehicle, so stopped looking. Oh, okay. Yeah, close case. A police sketch was never circulated to the media because we found the car, as the car was thought to be the only piece of key information. Vital witness statements were not treated seriously, and the case went cold quickly. Unbelievable, isn't it? Brown was a very strange man and was meticulously neat to fault, with immaculately pressed shirts and an odd habit of folding garbage up into neat squares before disposing of it. This latter quality interested police given the neatly folded clothing near McKay's sister's bodies. He also drove a Vauxhall with an oddly coloured door. That's funny how the other ones were correct, that they dismissed. Hmm. Which he replaced and buried shortly after the murders. Hmm. So he actually buried his car. <laughs> like I, I thought there was a typo or some kind of mistake. But like I've buried the numerous, door or something. I've read numerous articles. Just buried his whole he car. He replaced like, and buried his car. How do you? Like, how do you dig a hole big enough? I don't know. And then cover it. I have no idea, but that's what it reckons. As he didn't want anyone interviewing or annoying him. <laughs> okay. He he married Hester Porter in 1944 and became stepfather to her three children while also conducting an affair with Hester's sister, Charlotte. Oh, 
Okay. This is going to go down well, I reckon. Well, one, I like I have a problem that he's near kids. Hmm. Two, don't be having an affair with like her sister. Yeah. That whole situation is not Seems great. A lot, of, a lot of bad stuff going on there. Yeah. When Hester died in 1978 following a fall, oh, okay. he quickly married Charlotte. Is this the sister? This is the sister. God. Charlotte's son, Peter Nielsen, mm. believes Brown actually killed his first. Yeah. I mean, if he's capable of killing two little girls and yep. everything. Then... Yeah. Yep. We didn't want to be with the first wife. We wanted to be with the other one. Fearing she was planning to go to the police as she'd caught Brown molesting a child and confessed to her older sister, Millie, that she made sure he was never alone with her children. That's sad. It wasn't enough to protect them. And as various relatives came forward in the early 1980s and claimed that Brown had molested them as children, they teamed up and sought legal advice. Sadly, they were advised to keep this a family secret for fear that the trial might be traumatic for Brown's many victims. What about those victims? I was going to say the... There's just no justice. Many of the children were taken by Brown to the same dry creek bed the Mackay sisters were found in. Obviously has a set MO. Yeah. Kids feels comfortable in that location. Brown's July 2000 trial was delayed after his lawyer applied for a Section 613 verdict, unfit to be tried from the jury. (laughs) Why? He was never retried as he was found to have dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Oh, who cares? Mm. He died on July 6, 2002 at the age of 90 with no criminal conviction in a nursing home. I really hate that. Yeah. He left no blood relatives and gave instructions to his carer that no death notices published. Brown died an innocent man, having never been convicted of any of the crimes he was charged with, including the rape of six children. That's insane. Including the rape of six children the McKay murders, and 45 sexual assault charges. That is an extraordinary high number. You don't get those many charges against you if you are an innocent man. No. He had a facial similarity to the identical picture of the suspect for both the Beaumont and Adelaide Oval cases where five children had disappeared. A search for a connection to the Beaumonts was unsuccessful as no employment records existed that could shed light on his movements at the time. That's the thing, if he wasn't employed, he was free to move wherever he wanted, wanted. so he could have been there. Some of the records were believed lost in the 1974 Brisbane flood. It's also possible that Brown, who had unrestricted access to government buildings, may have deleted his own files. Although there's no proof that he had ever visited Adelaide, a witness recalled having a conversation with Brown in which he mentioned having seen the Adelaide Festival Centre as it was nearing completion, which places him in the city in June 1973. It's a bit hard to see that if you're not in Adelaide. Yeah, so he was obviously coming and going. Moss also claimed Brown was obsessed with the McKay sisters' killings as he worked as a carpenter at their school. He asked Auntie Hester, my sister, if we wanted to go and see where the McKay girls were murdered. (laughs) Miss Moss said. It was only a couple of weeks after they were found. Brown also had a secret room in his house locked on the inside. Auntie Hester and I got in there one day and found bottles of port wine and all these books, true stories on women who'd been murdered. Absolutely slaughtered, she said. He used to get all the grandkids drunk and show them the pictures of these women who'd been gutted and say, look, isn't that wonderful? Oh, my God. And there was paraphernalia like ropes and stuff like that. Uh, okay. 
like, I don't care if you want to, like, you can sit and drink port and read true crime and stuff because I, I sit and drink coffee and read true crime and watch true crime stuff, but don't show your little grandkids and don't have a creepy room with all this stuff in it. And lock yourself away. Oh, that's creepy. Another witness who reported seeing a man near the oval carrying a young girl while another older girl in distress followed later identified Brown as the man she'd seen mm. after seeing his picture on television in December 1998 in relation to the McKay murders. The woman, who identified the abductor as Brown, first saw him for a single minute when she was aged 14 and then identified him as Brown 25 years later when she saw him as an 86-year-old man on television. That's crazy. And by the way, sorry about Hunter. He is barking. Yeah, would you apologise? Additionally, she had reported that the man was wearing a pair of horn rimmed glasses, a pair of which Brown is known to have worn, something considered by police to be another noteworthy point in the identification. However, Brown was 53 at the time of the Beaumont disappearance, which does not match the description of the suspect seen in, with the children. But again, did he just look younger? Because it said, like, 30 to 40. Yeah. So. Yeah, so he could look, yeah. In the early 1970s, James O'Neill, who was jailed for life in 1975 for the murder of a nine-year-old boy in Tasmania, had told a station owner in the Kimberley and several other acquaintances that he was responsible for the disappearance of the Beaumont children. What well, dude gets around. In 2006, O'Neill lost an injunction in the High Court of Australia to stop the broadcast of a documentary, The Fisherman, which attempted to link him to the Beaumont case. <laughs> The documentary aired on the 26th of October on ABC. Hmm. Between 1965 and 1968, O'Neill worked in the opal industry, which you would like to work in, which required frequent travel. (laughs) Required what? (laughs) Which required frequent travel between Melbourne and Cooper Pedy in South Australia. I want to go to Cooper Pedy. One day. When he obtained work on a cattle station in the Kimberley region of Western Australia. In 1969, a business partner accidentally shot him in the head whilst playing with a pistol. Casual. The bullet, which entered his right forehead and came out of his neck, destroyed his sense of smell and taste. O'Neill went on to give many reasons for the bullet wound to various people, including it being the result of serving in Vietnam, that his mother's boyfriend had shot him and being he was also an ASIO spy. He's got a good imagination. He has. In 1971, O'Neill was charged with 12 offences involving abductions and sexual assaults of four boys in Victoria. He skipped bail and fled to Western Australia. And in 1974, November, he moved to Tasmania. Mm. In February 1975, nine-year-old Ricky John Smith, also known as Ricky Cube, was abducted and O'Neill was one of many who helped in the search for the missing boy. Over the next two weeks, five children were abducted in separate incidents, but all of them managed to escape. Nine-year-old Bruce Colin Wilson was then abducted and his body was found in May 1975 near Risdon Vale. O'Neill was a suspect and after interrogation led police to the body of Ricky Smith. Although arrested for both murders, he was only tried for Ricky Smith's murder following legal practice at the time. O'Neill pleaded insanity due to his head injuries from being shot in 1969 and claimed that police had held a gun to his head to get his confession. Funny how he knew where the body was, though. The jury found O'Neill guilty and he was jailed for life. Good. He applied for parole in 1991 
and again in 2005, but was turned down and has not reapplied. He remains Tasmania's longest-serving prisoner. In the 1990s, freelance journalist Janine Widgery approached a retired Victorian detective, Gordon Davy, with a proposal to make a documentary of James O'Neill. Davy saw no story suitable for a documentary and declined. In 1998, Davy read in a news report that O'Neill had been transferred in 1991 to the low-security Hayes Prison Farm and was allowed to go fishing in the Derwent River unsupervised. What? So this is a guy that murders kids, and he's allowed to just go fishing on his own. It doesn't seem like it could be a problem at all. And he's the longest-serving one. But that's that's how he's serving. He's just doing his own thing. That's crazy. Davey wrote to O'Neill asking for permission to interview him. O'Neill claimed he'd never even received so much as a parking ticket before. So Davey contacted Widgery and told her he didn't believe a word O'Neill said and that he thought there should be a story. Over the next four years, Davey recorded hundreds of hours of their conversations. O'Neill was highly intelligent, charismatic, and Davey said afterwards, he's one of the most likeable men you will ever meet. On the first day of filming, there were six or seven out there, and at the end of the day, I said, what do you think of him? They all said, you've made a mistake. This bloke couldn't have done anything wrong. However, a pattern emerged from the interviews. Of the places O'Neill had visited, children had gone missing in seven or eight of them. It was also alleged that he was in Adelaide about the time the Beaumont children disappeared and that he told people he was responsible for their disappearance. Why do people keep going around telling people they're responsible for them? Everybody's responsible. Like, everyone does. Like, if you did it, then you can. Yeah, but if you didn't... Yeah, if you didn't, stop. The resulting documentary, The Fisherman, named for O'Neill's passion for fishing and Davy's belief he also used the term as a euphemism for his murders, was scheduled for broadcast on the 21st of April 2005. But O'Neill put in for an injunction because he thought it would affect his chances of parole and the court stopped him doing it. On the 29th of August 2005, the ABC's appeal against the decision was dismissed and then the ABC appealed the decision in a high court of Australia. Basically, they were people were allowed to watch it. Mm. So you can watch it now if you want to. Davies said that there were, although there's no evidence to link O'Neill to the disappearance, he was persuaded that O'Neill was to blame. He asked him about the Beaumonts and he said, I couldn't have done it. I was in Melbourne at the time. And that's not a denial. Later, asked again if he had murdered the children, he replied, Look, on legal advice, I'm not going to say where I was or when I was there. Although O'Neill claims never to have visited Adelaide, his work in the opal industry at the time required that he frequently visited Cooper Beatty, which would have required him to pass through Adelaide. Davy also suspected O'Neill was involved in the disappearance of Ratcliffe and Gordon in 1973. South Australian police have interviewed O'Neill and discounted him as a suspect in the Beaumont case. In the early 1980s, O'Neill told a station owner in the Kimberleys and seven other acquaintances that he was responsible for the disappearance of the Beaumont children. Although O'Neill claims never have to have visited Adelaide, the roads to travel from Victoria to Cooper Pedy pass through Adelaide. The Tasmanian Police Commissioner Richard McCready was also interviewed for the documentary and claimed that O'Neill was going backwards and forwards through Adelaide frequently at the time. O'Neill has never spoken on the subject again. He now denies being in South Australia between 1965 and 1968. McCready, the retired Tasmanian police commissioner, 
has described O'Neill as probably the most cold-blooded and calculated murderer I've ever dealt with. Then there's Derek Percy. <laughs> they just keep coming. I remember listening. I can't remember what I was watching or whatever it was now, but there were so many people and they're like, and they think they could have a, a link to the Beaumont children. Yep. But then there was someone else and someone else. It's just horror. There have been suggestions that Derek Ernest Percy, Victoria's longest-serving prisoner, had been involved in the Beaumont case. Percy was in prison until his death in 2013 after being found not guilty by reason of insanity for the 1969 murder of Yvonne Tui. His insanity plea in the Tui murder was at least partly based on his suffering a psychological condition that could prevent him from remembering details of his actions. So he did it. Yeah, but he just doesn't remember all of it. So So because of that, he gets (laughs) off. That's crazy. He was supposed to have indicated that he believed he might have killed the Beaumont children as he was in the area at the time, but he had no recollection of actually doing so. On the 30th of August 2007, Victoria Police successfully applied for permission to question Percy in relation to the Beaumont disappearance. In 1966, Percy was 17 and therefore seems too young to have been the man seen with the Beaumont children by several witnesses. It's also unknown whether Percy would have had a car at that time. While the Beaumont children suspect is presumed by commentators to have had access to one for facilitating a quick getaway and for also disposing of the children's bodies. But I don't believe that. I don't think they needed a car. Mm. I think. Then there's Alan McIntyre's story. In 2015, a man known as Alan Maxwell McIntyre, who had himself been investigated by police and cleared of involvement in the Beaumont case, gave a second-hand account that a man he had known in 1966 called Alan Anthony Munro had come to his home with the children's bodies in the boot of his car. McIntyre's children said that they and their father initially mistook the body of Anna Beaumont for a boy because her hair was short. So this chap's taken dead bodies around for a visit. <laughs> and his kids and there. his kids. God. Munro was a former scoutmaster who pleaded guilty to 10 child sex offences, including buggery and indecent assault against several victims in South Australia's Kangaroo Island, Rapid Bay and Glenelg between 1962 and 1983. He had been sentenced to 10 years in prison with a non-parole period of five years and five months. Mm. So that's all you get for destroying all those souls. Apparently. Hmm. In 1992, Munro was convicted over a 1990 indecent assault on an 11-year-old boy and sentenced to seven months in prison. So I don't think they seem to care about these kids. I just don't. If this is what it feels like with these sentences. Just shocking. He then moved to Cambodia in 2009 and became involved in charities for orphaned Cambodians. I'm sure that's all he was doing. Oh, I'm sure. In June 2017, Adelaide detectives were given a copy of a child's diary written in 1966 which allegedly placed Munro in the vicinity of Glenelg Beach at the time of the children's disappearance. Munro returned to Adelaide for questioning from Cambodia, where he operated a ladyboy bar. Oh. Police believe Munro was in Adelaide around the time the Beaumont children vanished, but there's no direct evidence linking him to the disappearance. There's no direct evidence for any of them, but no, they're all seems so... All sickos. Like, 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 and it could have been any of them. It could have been any yeah. of them. And that brings us to Harry Phipps. 
Oh, is he the one that has the son? Yep. Yeah, okay. He does. Harry Phipps passed away on the 17th of February, 2004. He grew up in Glenelg in a house his father, Frederick William Tomlins, built. He remained there until being placed in care at Flagstaff Hill, South Australia. From a young age, his mother allegedly dressed him as if she wanted a girl. Hence, this is where he may have got his satin fetish from. So as an adult, he actually sewed his own dresses. And yeah, they were probably always a satin made, man or something. Yeah, they were always made of satin. Yeah. yeah. And it's probably because his mum dressed him in dresses because he didn't want a boy. Harry was married to Olga May Waters, Olga Phipps, for many years until Olga passed away. Phipps then married Daisy Ward, his housekeeper, who changed her name to Elizabeth Phipps. He soon bought land at North Plimpton, not far from Glenelg. Here he built a large factory that still stands today. He's connected with politicians, business people and senior members of the clergy. I was say high up people. High up people. He's a member of, of the prestigious Adelaide Club. Even back then, rumours swelled with workers and managers from the factory. Some family members, close friends and relatives, that this businessman had a dark side. Things were not right with him or his son. Whispers of sexual abuse abounded. Many had said Hayden Phipps hated his father with a passion as far back as they could remember, but they were never sure why, and that his hate was palpable. Coupled with Harry's handiwork when it came to making and wearing satin dresses, the dark side became more pronounced as Harry grew older. His son finally came out and accused him of sexual abuse that he had experienced over many years. Backed up in 2080 by a lady that had also been sexually abused and raped by Harry Phipps when she was a young teenage girl in the 1970s. Now another has come forward and spoken with Bill Hayes, private investigator, as of February 2019. Harry Phipps was identified as a possible suspect after the publication of the book The Satin Man uncovering the mystery of the missing Beaumont children in 2013. The book did not name the identity of the Satin Man, but his estranged son identified him soon after as the Satin Man and possible murderer. Phipps bore a substantial likeness to the police artist's impression of the man seen taking the children on the beach. He was a relatively tall man, around six foot one. He did have light brown hair in 1966 and a thin face. He was wealthy and known to be in the habit of giving out one-pound notes, was later alleged to have pedophile tendencies and lived only 300 metres away from Glenelg Beach on the corner of Augusta Street and Sussex Street. His birth date on the 1st of July 1917 made him 14 years of age at the time of the Beaumont's disappearance. Those that knew Harry Phipps at this time said he looked a lot younger than his 48 years. This age discrepancy leaves a question mark next to Harry Phipps being the possible abductor, 48-year-old having to look around 35 to 45. In 2007, Phipps's son Hayden, who was 15 at the time of the disappearance, came forward to researchers with the claim that he had seen the children in his father's yard that day. Two other persons, youths at the time, said they'd been paid by Phipps to dig a two-by-one-by-two-metre hole in his factory yard that weekend for unstated reasons. In November 2013, a one-metre square section of factory in North Plimpton, which had been owned by Phipps, was excavated following the new information about this possible involvement in the disappearance of the children. A ground-penetrating radar found one small anomaly, which can indicate movement or objects within the soil, but the dig found no additional evidence. 
and the investigation into the site was closed. On the 22nd of January 2018, Adelaide detectives announced that they would return to the factory site and conduct further excavations. After private investigations sponsored by Channel 7 Adelaide, the excavation on 2 February 2018 took nine hours. Animal bones and general rubbish were found, but nothing related to the Beaumont case. The naming of Phipps during Channel 7's investigation led to two brothers coming forward, claiming that they had, may have inadvertently dug the Beaumont children's grave. They said Mr Phipps had paid them in the days after the children's disappearance to dig a large hole at the factory site. In 2017, more evidence may have come to hand as according to South Australian Major Crime Superintendent, there's been information that has come in that has caused us in 2017 to commence a discreet investigation, which we didn't announce publicly, into Harry Phipps. In addition to this, former SA detective Bill Hayes has said, in this particular case, we've got over 30 coincidences lining up to Mr Phipps. Despite the failed Castelloy dig, there is still the possibility that Harry Phipps was the Beaumont children abductor. There was a cottage at Castelloy that was deemed out of bounds to all staff except Harry Phipps, and it's alleged he dressed in satin here, which aroused him. He may have taken the Beaumont children to this cottage before disposing of their bodies through another method at the site. There was a factory waste area that resembled a sand pit. Phipps may have dumped the surfboard bags in here containing the Beaumont children and would have hence bypassed the risky manoeuvre of getting people to dig the hole. Another possibility involves the furnaces that Harry Phipps had access to on the factory site. Depending on certain factors, this may have been thought of as an easy way to hide all of the evidence. At the time of the investigation, the Beaumonts received widespread sympathy from the Australian public. They remained in their Somerton Park home and Nancy Bowman in particular held hope that her children would return and stated in the interviews that it would be dreadful if the children returned home and did not find their parents waiting for them. Oh, that's so heartbreaking. It's so sad. Over the years, as new leads and new theories emerged, the Beaumonts cooperated fully in exploring every possibility, whether it was claims that the children had been abducted by a religious cult and were living variously in New Zealand, Melbourne or Tasmania, or some clue that suggests a possible burial site for the children. They were devastated in 1990 when newspapers published computer-generated photographs of how the children would have looked as adults. The pictures, published against their wishes, caused a huge wage of public sympathy from the community, which is still sensitive to their pain. The couple later divorced and lived separately. Having resolved to live their final years away from the public attention that followed them for decades, they sold their home and while the case remains open, the South Australian police said the, the case would never be closed. Nancy Beaumont died in Adelaide on the 16th of September 2019, aged 92, whereas Jim still continues to reside in Adelaide at age 90. Half a century on, the reward's now up to a million dollars. It would be nice if, I don't know, something happened and before he died so he'd have closure. Closure, mm. yeah. I but can it, imagine going like your whole life pretty much not knowing what happened to your kids. But all the 
all of the suspects are all dead or dying. Yeah. I guess just all the witnesses, mm. just hopes just fading. And that they they say this case is the reason, you know, Australian kids can't just roam the streets now. Yeah. Cases like that that, you know, your kids mm. used to be able to just go down the beach, go down the pool, just go off for the day. Now you wouldn't let them out of your sight for five seconds. I was going to say, I have not known that. <laughs> no. And so many kids now just have such horrific anxiety mm. because they're scared of strangers, scared of other people. Oh, scared of I am. I'm terrified. Like I used to have a Jeep, <laughs> which was an amazing car, but my radiator used to constantly overheat. So I'd constantly have to be pulled over. And I was like, I know what I'm doing. Please do not stop. And if I heard a car coming, I put the bonnet down. I'm like, I pretend to be on the phone. Yeah. Just so people will not stop and ask me questions or come near me because I'm like, I don't want to get murdered today. No. You can't trust people. No. Mm. It's to that point where I don't stop and help people and I don't want people to stop and help me. Yeah. But you just. You can't trust people. There's those people who are just looking for that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like probably 99% of the people are amazing and they do just want to help you. Yeah. But society now is so terrifying that I don't want help, which is so sad because like who doesn't want to live in a world where people help each other out and it's just happy and great. Yeah. And you don't have to be scared. Yeah. But it. It's not the way it is. Well, that's all I've got. Well, that was just horrible. It was, wasn't it? And just the fact that there's so many. I hate that it's unsolved. Like for me, two chaps that live in the local vicinity are suspects. Yeah. You know, horrific. But there's just dozens of them. And the, that's the thing, like they're not even in the area. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Like you said, one's up in the Kimberley. Like that's opposite end of the country yeah yeah and they just travel yeah and, and do bad stuff yeah leaving a trail of bodies yeah bodies and hurt behind them yeah. well thank you for destroying my soul a little bit more very very welcome happy to destroy your soul anytime <laughs> i mean i do it to myself anyway so <laughs> and i'm probably gonna do it to everyone else next week so hopefully so if anyone knows what happened to those precious little kitties Hmm. Tell us all so we know. I think that's everything. I think that's it. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. You can follow us at Facebook at Solved, Unsolved or Spooky, on Twitter at hashtag or solved, Instagram at Solved, Unsolved or Spooky. You can email us at podcast at solved, unsolved or spooky.com. And if you want to support the show, Go to Podfan and find Solved, Unsolved or Spooky and pick one of the tiers. Thank you. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.